Lord, we adore you tonight. We adore you for all your ways, for all your character. All that you are is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. Lord, tonight we remember all that you paid, all that you conquered by your resurrection. God, we're so thankful that you did not leave us in the mire. You did not leave us in our own uh, pitiable state, God. We deserved the flood. We deserved that. And you, in your kindness and mercy, saw fit to give us something better. To give us something that would not just save us. It was not just you forgiving us of our sin, but you actually made a way for us to become good. To become righteous people. To become holy and set apart for your purposes. Lord, you had planned so much more than we could have ever dreamed. Thank you. Thank you for changing us from the inside out. That you not just left us as as despicable beings, but somehow forgiven. No, you gave us a new heart with new desires. You gave us of your spirit so that we would be a temple of God. And you gave us a community with which to live life together and, and love each other and not be alone. Thank you for the immeasurable blessings that you have poured out on us tonight, that you have given in these last days that you gave to your people, Lord. And as we read the Old Testament, we are struck by all that they did not have that we have been given. Like Hebrews says that only together with us would they be made complete. Lord, we thank you that we live in the age of the new covenant. We are a blessed people. Thank you for that gift. Lord, we don't take it for granted. What all your people for all history have had to live without, we have been given since Jesus is coming, his dying, his resurrecting, and his pouring out of his Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. We praise your name tonight, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Get some pants. Yeah, let me give these. Mom, where should I Well, here we are again, Easter. This is the, the second Easter sermon of Wellspring. And um, I'll just tell you up front that this is... Uh, I hope you won't judge me too harshly. This is not your typical Easter sermon. I've had the chance to, now with two Easter's, and everyone seems to be a, a unique experience. Last year I preached on the woman at the well in John 4, and that was, that was wonderful. I loved it. Uh, but it's not your typical Easter sermon. Well, this one's probably even weirder. This one's probably even more obscure. I was telling uh, Monique this week that I don't know, uh, maybe if anyone in history, has ever preached an Easter sermon on the genealogies of Genesis 4 and 5. 
But that's what we're going to do. So I hope, I hope by the end of this, I can convince you that it's connected. You can be the judge of that. You can be the judge of that. Is this just me following the pattern? But I, I think I found the way to connect it. Connect Jesus and the story of Jesus and what he's done on this glorious Easter day and in the stories of Genesis 4 and 5. Okay? Sorry. It's, a, it's all right. I'm sorry. They're helping me. Yep. I can hear that. And I'm sure everyone who's listening can hear my kids helping as well. Um, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. So, so like I said, by the end of this, I'll let you be the judge of whether or not we've made those connections. But this week I named the sermon Genealogy. That's all. Genealogy. The generations. Right? We're going to go through the rest of chapter 4 tonight and all of chapter 5. And I'm not going to read all of it. I will read a, a significant amount of it, but I won't read every word of it. But you'll, if you've ever read certain passages of scriptures, you've read genealogies, if you've read the numbering of people, it, it, can, it can get kind of boring. Uh, my job, I, I love the scriptures deeply. My job is to convince you that there's meaning in this, that there's depth in this. There's importance here. Okay? So we'll start in verse 17. If you remember last week, we talked about the Cain and Abel story. And that's where we ended with, with uh, Cain being sent out even further east, away from the Lord's presence, away from God. And now we are, are starting at this point where a genealogy, right, a generation, a list of names from father to son, father to son, father to son, tells you the lineage of people. That's what a genealogy is. And so we start here in verse 17 where we start with the genealogy of Cain and who Cain is, right? We're in Genesis 4, verse 17, if you have your, Bible, if you have your Bibles tonight. So verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife. He knew his wife, right? That's the euphemistic way. And she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. What's interesting here is this second Enoch is, is kind of uh, obscure in the Hebrew wording. It's possible that this is about Cain building a city and naming it Enoch. But it's also possible that it's about Enoch building a city and naming it after his son. I actually kind of lean towards the idea it's Enoch who builds a city and names it after his son. Because... Interestingly enough, in ancient Mesopotamian documents we've found before, the name of the oldest city in the world, according to Mesopotamia, is Iradu. Iradu. Sounds like Irad, doesn't it? That's, according to Mesopotamia, that's the oldest city in the world. What the point of this is, though, is that Cain is a wanderer. Cain is a wanderer, right? He, he's moved away and he, he's told he's going to be a vagrant and a wanderer. And so if Enoch builds this city and calls it after his son, Erod, we have a new development in human history, don't we? The first city. The first urbanization where people are living together in, in this kind of uh, built-up place, right? That's a new thing. We haven't seen that. All we've seen so far, it's very uh, uh, common to us, so we don't think much of it, right? We're used to urban spaces, but for them, all they've known is the garden, right? And this city is new. There's a new thing happening. 
Okay, so verse 18, Enoch was, to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Mahujael. Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech is his name. Lamech is an interesting character, isn't he? If you've read this before, Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the first one was Adah, and the name of the other, Silah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. What's that reference to? He's the first nomad, the first Bedouin, right? The first who keeps flocks and moves about, right? The, the, that's the typical lifestyle we see of the Bedouins, of the nomadic peoples, right? He's the first person to do it, okay? And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. What's that? It's music. The first musician. Aaron, your blood goes back here. This is the first musician. First person to play the lyre and pipe, the most basic instruments that we've made. Probably a, a pan flute or something like that, the pipe. right? And he, he can make music. This is a new development. Right? We're at the earliest stages of humanity and all these new, wonderful things are coming into being. As for Scylla, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. This is the first idea that we're going to be working and smelting and, and making uh, new instruments out of, of earthen materials, Right? This is all brand new. It's also old hat to us. But in these early days, these are amazing innovations, incredible innovations. Urbanization, nomadic uh, shepherding, music, instruments of bronze, being able to form new instruments out of, of metal and bronze and iron, right? But what kind of man? Is Islamic. Well, he must have, it must be where Jubal got it. He, he's got a musical bent. It's a pretty dark song, probably heavy metal. <laughs> but he sings a song. This is Hebrew poetry. And he says this Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. He speaks a poem. One thing I'll teach you about Hebrew poetry, uh, this will hopefully be helpful for all of your Bible reading, but Hebrew poetry, uh, unlike English poetry, what's the main component of English poetry, and really songwriting? It's, it's rhyming, right? It's, it's the rhyme. That's not true of Hebrew poetry. The defining characteristic of Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. And what it means is they have parallel lines that match each other, right? And you can see it perfectly in this poem right here, right? Ada and Zillah, and wives of Lamech, those two are parallel lines. Listen to my voice, give heed to my speech, parallel lines. I killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. Parallel lines. Okay, that's a poem. He's speaking out a poem. But it's a dark poem. 
It's a dark poem. The darkness of the poem is, of course, this last line, who he is. But what does it relate him to? It relates him to his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, doesn't it? He's just like Cain. Just like his ancestors. I'll, I'll get to you at the end, Dad. Um, he's just like his ancestors, right? What's interesting about this is if you know your, your Pentateuch, if you know the first five books, he's actually referencing something. And this is what we've talked about over and over again, the importance of knowing the law, right? We said Genesis is really impacted by the law and by the rest of, of the, the Torah. And, and I, one good example is this. This poem he speaks out actually is a reference to a specific law in Exodus. Okay, In the law, you may not have heard it by this name, it's called the law of Talion. It's the law of retribution. And though you may not recognize the name, I know you've heard this. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's a, a retribution principle. What's the principle? Equivalent retribution for what was done. Right? Equivalent retribution. It's in Exodus 21, verse 25. And he quotes these two words which are found in the passage. It's the same two Hebrew words. But if there is any further injury, this is Exodus 21, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Those are the two terms that Lamech uses. I have killed a, a man for wounding me. I have I've killed a boy for bruising me, even though they translate it in English as striking. It's the same Hebrew words behind those two passages. It's a direct call to the law. So when the Israelites would read this, what would they say? They would look at Lamech and say, he's a vengeful man. He's not striking for the strike. He's killing for the strike. He goes beyond what God has ordained. He's an evil man. He's a dark man. And of course, he ends what he's saying by saying this. If Cain is avenged, excuse me, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold, right? He's boastful. Man, if Cain was going to get avenged for killing one person, if he was going to get avenged for his one murder, how much more will God avenge the person who kills me? Because I'm a killer. I'm a killer of men. It, it kind of reminds you of Romans, right? That, that passage in Romans. Should we sin that grace may increase? Right? That's what it makes me think of. That's what this guy is, operates like. He's like, man, if, if Cain is going to get avenged, how much more am I going to get avenged by God? Because I've killed way more than Cain. Right? Then the, then the end of that uh, chapter, the end of chapter 4 is this. It, it precursors what we're going to see in chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is the line of Seth. Right? It's a different line. And so it precursors that by telling us this. Adam again knew his wife. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. For Cain killed him. 
Seth, it's Shet. Shet sounds like this word appointed here or placed or set. It's Shet, right? So these words sound very similar. And so that name is based off of the appointing. This is the appointed one in place of Abel. That's what Sheth means. Okay. Now I did these two genealogies together because I want you to see the comparison. I want you to see how they relate to each other. Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man, Adam, in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Look at this. The likeness language passes on, right? God made Adam in his likeness, and Adam bears a son that is in his own likeness, and according to his image. That's important. That's important. We'll come back to that at the end of the genealogy. Okay, so now you have these two genealogies to look at. One is really the line of Cain and one is the line of Seth. And if we look at the line, you've got Genesis 4, Adam, Cain, Enoch, Irad, Mahujael, Methushael, Lamech. What's special about Lamech? Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch. It's the seventh generation. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, seven's an important number. It's the number of completeness, the number of perfection. It's the moment at which there's seven generations down from Adam. Let's take a look at what these people are like. Let's look in at the genealogy and see who these people are. Lamech, we saw, he's a murderer. He's an awful man. He's a killer of men. He, he's going to be avenged 77-fold, according to his language. What is Enoch like? Enoch lived 65 years, and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch's, Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. For God took him. Enoch is righteous. In fact, he's so righteous, he's one of the few people that gets to say he walks with God. The same God who walked in the garden, the same God who, who was in the presence of Abel and Cain, right? Who met them. Enoch walks with God. And it just says he was not. Why? Because God took him. It doesn't even say he died. Everyone else, they're, they're dying. And then they're having kids. And then they live the rest of their life. And then they die. Enoch just, it's like he just ceased to be. He just walked off the earth. Because God took him. That's about righteousness. That's about righteousness. 
If you see what's going on with these two genealogies back to back, it's talking about the evil of Cain's line and the righteousness of Seth's line. These two things are intermingled in the earth. The evil line of Cain and the righteous line of Seth are, are intermingled in the world. Right? But it goes on from here, right? Enoch has a child, and his child is Methuselah. And, and of course, uh, if you know Bible trivia, Methuselah, the longest living person, right? 969 is what he gets. And then Methuselah has a child, and he names him Lamech. Probably not after the other one. Different Lamech, right? And then Lamech has a child, and he names him Noach. Noach means rest. He names him rest. Why? Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of the son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Again, this is that Messiah language, isn't it? He's, Lamech thinks this is the one who's going to reverse the curse. This is the one who's going to deal with it. I'm naming him rest, believing he's the one who's going to deal with the curse. He'll finally give us rest from the hard labor of the toil. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah. He had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Noah was 500 years old. And Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's where the chapter ends. With Noah. Okay? So what are the genealogies telling us? It's all these names and, and not much data. It's not much information. What's going on with these? They're actually making theological points. If we look at Genesis 4 and 5 back to back, like I said, the, the evil line and the righteous line, both stemming from Adam, we learn some things. One, if we look at the evil line, we learn this. Even the most wonderful innovations of humanity are tainted with sin. That list was an incredible list of great things. Cities, nomadic Tents and, and sheep herding. Music. How much do we all love music? Wonderful things. Wonderful things. And yet, they're, they're mentioned in the line of Cain. Why? Because it's a theological point that even the most wonderful things we have innovated are tainted with evil. It doesn't mean they're pure evil. It doesn't mean there's nothing good and redeemable. But it's nothing has escaped the grasp of what Adam and Eve did. What Adam and Eve did, it's definitive for humans. This sin will not go away. And so right in the middle of this list of wonderful things that humans have learned to do, you have Lamech say, you, first, you have Lamech take two wives, which breaks the pattern you see with Adam and Eve, right? There's something wrong there. And you have him boast about being a murderer. 
There's no remorse left. He's proud of his evil. And that's right smack dab in the middle of these wonderful achievements of humankind. It's because nothing has escaped. Nothing has escaped the sinfulness that Adam and Eve brought into humanity. Okay, secondly, despite that, humanity never lost the image and the likeness of its creator. That's what the righteous line tells us, right? It begins at the place of saying Adam was made in the likeness of God. And then Adam has a son, Seth, who was made in his image and likeness. That means the image that Adam had, he passed on to his son. You see, it's interweaving, it's intermingling something about humans and what makes them who they are. The image, despite the evil we just read about in Cain's line in Genesis 4, that will never be enough to break the image of God in humankind. The image passes on. Adam gives it to Seth. And even though it doesn't mention it specifically, the implication is, of course, that every father passes it along the line. Seth to Enosh, and so on down the line. Right? The image is never lost. And so we are still in the same boat today, aren't we? A mixture of the image of God and, and the plague of sin. That is humanity. Even to this day, from the earliest days of humankind to now, that is still true. But lastly, lastly what the genealogies talk to us about is that they're leading somewhere. They're leading somewhere. One thing I was thinking about, you know, we talked about this even in this sermon, about how, how the law and the exodus loom large over everything in Genesis. Right? They, they are important. They're central to the Pentateuch, to what's going on in the Torah. And here, I thought about this this week. The, gene, the genealogies are leading us to somewhere. What's interesting is the genealogies start right from the beginning of Genesis, and they go all the way through the book. They show up over and over and over through the book of Genesis. It's almost like you're looking at a family tree, right? And you're going down the branches, and every once in a while, the narrator will be like, hold on, stop here. Let's, let's hear a story about this one, right? Oh, we're at Adam. Let's hear the story about how he, how he ate the fruit. And then the genealogy continues. Oh, stop, I got a story about Cain. And then reads the names. And then, oh, wait, wait, we just went through chapter 4 and 5. Oh, we're at Noah. Hey, hey, I've got a story about Noah. And you stop at Noah. And then the genealogies continue from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The, the line of Shem continues to go down. But eventually, now this is not to say there aren't other genealogies in the Old Testament. There are. There are. But where the genealogies stop in the Pentateuch is significant because they stop when you get to the Exodus. Why? Why is that, why, why is that where they're leading us? Why does it stop then? Because they run throughout the whole book of Genesis and stop there. 
it's because we're being led to the significance of the Old Testament, which is in three things. One, who will be the mediator of the Old Covenant? Who will be the mediator? Two, what's the significant event that is definitive for that covenant? And three is this. What will constitute the people? What will make a people of God? What will call them into being? And all of that happens right where the genealogies stop. When you stop the genealogies at the end of Genesis and get to the Exodus, all of these things will be answered. Because who's the mediator? It's Moses. We've been waiting all the way through Genesis to get to Moses, the supreme mediator of the old covenant between God and man. And what's the event? It's, of course, the Exodus, the redemption story, God calling his people out of Egypt. And what constitutes them as a people? The giving of the law. The giving of the law is what makes them Israel. Until they have been given the law at Sinai, they have not been made into a people. That is the defining of them as a people, is the giving of the law. In fact, that's how they identify themselves. They are the people under God's law. Right? If you're going to have a proselyte, someone who, who becomes a Jew, who becomes part of their religion, they have to submit themselves to the law. They have to get circumcised. They have to follow the rules and commandments of the law so that they can become part of Israel. So, what's that have to do with Jesus? <laughs> what it has to do with Jesus is this. Where does the New Testament start with the genealogy? Matthew 1 starts with a genealogy. There's also another genealogy early on in Luke, Luke 3. It gives a genealogy of Jesus. Here's Matthew 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that passage ends in this way. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of, to Babylon to the Messiah, 14. Significant numbers, multiples of seven, right? And here's how Luke's end. See if these names sound familiar. Luke Verse 23, here's the start of the genealogy. It's about Jesus beginning his ministry. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And then it goes down the, names, the list of names, reverse, going backwards in time. And then these names come up in verse 36. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why do these genealogies start out the New Testament Gospels? Because they're leading somewhere, just like the Old Testament ones. And they're leading to the exact same thing. Who 
is the mediator of the new covenant? What is the event that defines the new covenant? And what constitutes the people of the new covenant? Just like we had Moses, just like we had the Exodus, just like we had the giving of the law. It's leading in the New Testament. And you know what the New Testament's saying? It's saying everything you read in the Old Testament, every piece of it was all just precursor to this moment. It all has been leading here. They compress all of that history, all of human history, all the way back to Adam in just a a few short verses. And they say, guess what? All of that from Adam all the way to Joseph was just leading so that we could get here to Jesus. This is where we've been waiting to come. And the genealogies lead right to Jesus and then they stop. Why? Because here's where we want to focus. Because we have a new mediator in the new covenant. The one greater than Moses. The mediator of the new covenant is Jesus. And what's the central event we've all been waiting for? It is Easter. It's today. And all that Easter encompasses, that whole weekend, right? That whole period. It's his death, but it's not only his death. It's his resurrection. It's his exaltation. It's his ministry. It's all this reality that Jesus came to do. It's his work, the work of Christ. That is the event that is definitive for the new covenant. And what's the last thing it's leading to? How are the new people of God constituted? How are they made a people? Because Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Spirit is what defines the people of God in the New Testament. It is what constitutes them as the church. Just like Israel. You see these things reflect each other. You can see it. Just like the genealogies in the Old Testament led us to Moses, the Exodus, and the giving of the law, the definitive things of the Old Covenant, so too the genealogies of the New Testament lead us to the definitive things of the New Testament. Jesus, Easter, and the giving of his Spirit, the beginning of the church. The genealogies are telling us that we've been waiting for the moments at the end of them. And Israel consistently throughout the Old Testament and even to this day point to the Exodus, the giving of the law, and Moses as the definitive pieces of the Old Covenant. Now, they wouldn't call it the Old Covenant, obviously, but for their covenant, they are the definitive things. And so we too, even 2,021 years later, point to these realities as the definitive realities of the new covenant. Jesus, still our mediator. The one who opened the veil so that we could approach. Jesus. Jesus, who made it possible through his death and giving us new life through his resurrection. Easter, still the defining event. Why we always talk about it. And we can never talk about it enough. The defining event of the new covenant. The defining action of God. Just like the defining action of God was the exodus in the Old Testament. The defining act of God in history of all time 
is what Jesus accomplishes. And of course, we always look back and celebrate that God gave his spirit so that we might become his people. For without his spirit, we never become his people. His spirit is what makes us the church. That's the importance of the genealogies. They're leading us somewhere. And at the end, Luke 3 is such a great example. All those names we just read about in Genesis 4 and 5 show up in Luke 3. Because they're leading Jesus from Jesus all the way back to Adam. To say everything that has happened led to this moment. Jesus' ministry, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, so that he might make us a, a people, the people of God, the church, by giving his spirit. That's the truth. That's the truth we have to reside in tonight. That these things still constitute the greatest realities that we live under. We have been privileged as a people to live in the era when these things are true, when they are already come to pass. We have lived after Jesus came. We have lived after Jesus made it possible. He did the work of God. And we've lived after we've become a people by, his giving, uh, by the giving of his spirit. We live in the greatest of days Right? We live in the greatest of days when all these things are true. And that's why every year, and really every week of the church, we look back to these three realities. Because they're the things that have made us who we are, that have brought us salvation. Jesus, his work, the giving of his spirit is what have made us a people, what have made us connect to God, would have brought us salvation. Jesus, Easter, and the giving of his spirit. And that's what I have for you tonight. But remember, even these smallest moments, I would never claim that every part of scripture is as important as every other part. That's not true. Some are obviously going to be more meaningful but that doesn't mean that even the smallest parts don't have meaning and value to see and read and to study. And even something that seems as boring and inconsequential as a genealogy leads us to the deepest truth about where God is going, where he is headed towards. We too get to take up our place in the genealogy and leave a legacy that goes beyond us for people who will be part of this group, the church. And just as Jesus came, we all were grafted into Jesus and became part of that family line. We can trace our very lineage to Christ because of the giving of his spirit. And so too, uh, that is my prayer tonight, that you would see that, that you would see that, that you're part of the history of the people of God, bought in, grafted in for Gentiles, into this tree, 
into this family tree. We've become part of the line. And the greatest thing we can do is invite other people into the line. Whether that be our own children who we raise up to know Jesus and they enter the line truly through our lineage, or whether it be someone far from God who we reveal the truth to that they might come and partake and taste, taste the goodness of God and become part of that. That's what we're called to do. All right, let me pray for you. Let me bless you tonight. Lord, thank you for each person in this room. I'm so grateful that we all can claim a place in your line. Lord, we were on the, on the side of Cain. We were dark and evil people filled with sin. The image was still in us. We still bore your image, but it was broken and dark. Thank you. Thank you for throughout the ages, from Adam on down, as we read the list of these names and think about the countless unknown stories there are that could be told about each person throughout history. And you walked alongside humanity through every generation all the way to today where you've walked alongside us and invited us to join your people. God, we're thankful for that. We're thankful we can take our place alongside your people and be called the church, constituted by your spirit, defined by the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and always in thankfulness to Jesus, our mediator, the one who made a way for us to connect to you, Father. We're so grateful. Would you remind us of our great, proud heritage tonight and throughout this next week? Thank you for this day, the day that we celebrate what Jesus accomplished on your behalf, God. We praise your name. We glorify who you are. We lift high the name of Jesus. We do all this in your precious Son's name and by your Spirit's mighty power. Amen. Amen.